0: six of our series on King David. And uh, this week we are looking at what has to be one of the Bible's more difficult stories. It's a real hard story, this one. Uh, This is a story about lustful fixation. Um, And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down some kind of teaching points on this and just take you through these teaching points. Uh, And my hope is that with the Bible's very kind of unflinching survey of a very difficult area, that there will be some enlightenment and some healing and some perspectives that we can bring um, to an issue or to some issues that I think we still wrestle with uh, today in our world. So I'm going to just get straight into this. So number one, my first teaching point, and you'll find this in your version app, let's just be really clear that what Amnon feels is fixation, not love. What Amnon feels is fixation and not love. And there are several things that give us clues that this is not um, love in the traditional, healthy, romantic sense. Uh, And those clues come through, first of all, um, in a series of words that we find in the first few verses. Let me just share some of those words with you. Infatuated. Frustrated. Sick. Impossible. Miserable. Pretend. None of these are characteristics of healthy romantic love, but they are typical of an infatuation or an obsession. Um, I think there's a kind of sliding scale of, from kind of healthy romantic love all the way across to really obsessive and in, you know, a really obsessive infatuation. Um, and if we 're unsure where we might stand on that scale um, we can ask ourselves a pretty straightforward question, actually, that will help us to establish where we're coming from. Um, And the question is this. It's kind of two parts to the same question. Am I motivated by what I can get from this person? Or am I motivated by what I can give to this person? Those are two very different things, aren't they? Uh, Whenever we approach our interrelationships with other people, if we're motivated by what we can get from someone, essentially that's going to lead to grasping sins and self-centeredness in in a not great way. But if we approach a person in terms of, well, what can I do to give to this person? That's a very different mindset. Um, If we just changed one word in the last part of verse 2, you'll see the difference um imagine if the bible said that amnon found it impossible to do anything for her well that makes it very different doesn't it because that shows a person who's trying to kind of turn over every stone uh you know find every eventuality to serve a person to, to kind of do something for them but this is not what we get we've got a person who's kind of absolutely obsessed with working out a way of doing something to another person. And so it's self-based. It's about what I can extract. It's, what, it's, it's about what Amnon can extract from Tamar. Um, Amnon is basically envisaging sex outside marriage. Uh, let's just be frank about it. And the Bible teaches that sex is an exclusive gift to build intimacy between uh, a man and a woman who are married in that exclusive uh, marriage relationship, it's a covenant relationship. We talked about membership earlier being a covenant or an, an agreement that you're stepping into with other people to build a spiritual house. Well, marriage is a similar agreement between uh, you know, a man and a woman who just decide they love each other, that they decide to love each other enough to spend the rest of their days with each other, and that they've got each other's whole and long-term interests at heart. Um, but Amnon's intentions towards Tamar are to her, not for her and that reveals a very different agenda. Um, it reveals a desire to take sex from her in a way that she is not permissioned him at all to do. Um, let's just also pick out a couple of instances in the Bible where we have something very very different in view. Um, do you remember the story of Boaz and Ruth? Um, and how one, one particular night, Ruth is encouraged by her mum, I think it is, to go and sort of sleep at Boaz's feet. And Boaz is kind of curled up on the mat in the, th- in the threshing room, isn't he? And he, w- he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he sees this beautiful woman lying at his feet. Now, had he been Amnon with the agenda that Amnon has in this story, that would not have worked out well for Ruth, would it? That could have been a very dangerous situation for Ruth. And as it happens, Boaz goes to the elders at the city gate and says, Hey, listen, I'd really like to marry this girl. There's a kinsman redeemer. Do you want her? And he says no. And so the the way is publicly paved for that relationship to have a proper footing. This is very, very different with Amnon. Amnon is not interested in that. He's looking to get something from this girl. Um, And so we have a very different scenario. Um, Can I just point out that Boaz's mum was Rahab the prostitute. And that's a really significant piece of information because it tells us that in the journey from one generation to the next generation, we are not determined by what the previous generation got up to. Or the mistakes that they made. You know, sometimes in the church world, you, you kind of hear these things. Oh, like I've got these ancestral sins I'm battling, and you know, th- th- there's a, there's a line that's come through my family all the way back to the 1800s where there was some problem with X or Y or Z, and therefore I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z. And yes, there's an element of truth in that because family patterns do run over generations. But what what uh, the journey of Boaz tells us is that Rahab, despite a bad start in prostitution, decided to get married to a guy called Salmon, or Sama, I think it is, and she had a decent family, and she raised Boaz to be the absolute picture of gentlemanliness. And so from one generation to the next, we see something halted, don't we? We see an ungodly thread is brought to an end. Amen, that's a great thing, isn't it? And I mean, I'm sure that there are things in your life where you're praying that an ungodly thread is coming to an end, and like that stops with me. Um, you know, Chloe and I are first generation Christians. And that means, that there and I'm sure some of you are here in the room as well, that means some ungodly threads are coming to an end in the name of Jesus. And that's a really, really good thing. Paul gives a great description of what love really is. Uh, he gives it in 1 Corinthians 13, and famously it's often read at, read at marriage ceremonies, but it's, it's about love in general. Love is... Having someone else's long-term interest in your heart and in your mind. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says this, Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking. It's not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so that example of boaz that example from paul's writing gives us very clear and healthy pictures of what love is and what amnon is in here is not healthy that it might say in your translation you know, that he loved her and i think in the csb it says um he was infatuated with her, which is a much better word describing his uh, not great approach to tamar so that's number one number one uh, let's just be really clear what amnon feels is fixation it's not love number two no means no. Number two, no means no. Uh, we, uh, Chloe and I uh, have some guideline questions by which we can help um, people who are looking to get married make a decision about their marriage partner. Um, and there are, there are kind of six, they're rough and ready questions, they're by no means scientific, but they kind of help you kind of place Um, Is this a person that I could potentially marry? And some of you might find these questions helpful. Um, If the answer to all these questions for you about the other person is yes, that's a good sign. And if for them it's a yes about you, that's an even better sign. Um, And then if it's yes all around, you've got potential for a good marriage there. Um, The questions would be, does this person bring me closer to God? Uh, Can I talk with this person about anything and nothing until 3 o'clock in the morning? Do I fancy this person? Can I envisage this person as the parent of my children? Um, Does this person respect my no? Have I grasped through my rose-tinted romantic spectacles that this person really isn't perfect? Uh, despite how I feel about them. And, and if you ask yourselves those six questions in a sober and objective way, and for that, for you, that person that you've got these uh, romantic intentions towards, it's a yes to all of those, and it's a yes back from them to you, about you, you've got some good ingredients and good raw material to go ahead and form a marriage. You really do. <clears throat> now, let's take those six questions and then run that past the filter of Amnon. And Amnon just fails pretty much most of them, Number three, do I fancy this person has been taken to a colossal and obsessive level uh, to a ridiculously unhealthy place Um, and then, then also there's a total disregard for her no. Uh, And in fact, she says no very clearly, uh, and he ignores that. Now, we have a very helpful video in our culture. You may have seen this. It's actually been produced by UK police. And what it does is it kind of couches the idea of consent, um, sexual consent, but it turns it into a little parable, and it talks about consent in terms of wanting a cup of tea uh, I'm sure one or two of you may have seen this before but I thought this was important that no is a no and that you need to understand what consent is uh, and I know that there's loads of people in the house who already understand this but I also think a church needs to teach values to society too uh, and so if there are folk out there that need to see that online here we go so um, please just watch this little video a minute and you'll get a chance to see the consent tea video and you'll get the illustration straight away play the video for us thank you very much Wayne
1: If you're still struggling with consent, just imagine instead of initiating sex, you're making them a cup of tea. You say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they go, oh my god, I would love a cup of tea, thank you. Then you know they want a cup of tea. If you say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they're like, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Then you can make them a cup of tea, or not, but be aware that they might not drink it. And if they don't drink it, then... And this is the important bit. Don't make them drink it. Just because you made it doesn't mean you're entitled to watch them drink it. And if they say, no thank you, then don't make them tea at all. Just don't make them tea. Don't make them drink tea. Don't get annoyed at them for not wanting tea. They just don't want tea, okay? They might say, yes please, that's kind of you. And then when the tea arrives, they actually don't want the tea at all. Sure, that's kind of annoying, as you've gone to all the effort of making the tea, but they remain under no obligation to drink the tea. They did want tea, now they don't. Some people change their mind in the time it takes to boil the kettle, brew the tea and add the milk. And it's okay for people to change their mind, and you are still not entitled to watch them drink it. And if they're unconscious, don't make them tea. Unconscious people don't want tea, and they can't answer the question, do you want tea, because they're unconscious. Okay, maybe they were conscious when you asked them if they wanted tea, and they said yes, but in the time it took you to boil the kettle or brew the tea and add the milk, they are now unconscious. You should just put the tea down. Make sure the unconscious person is safe. And this is the important part again. Don't make them drink the tea. They said yes then, sure. But unconscious people don't want tea. If someone said yes to tea, started drinking it, and then passed out before they'd finished it, don't keep on pouring it down their throat take the tea away make sure they are safe because unconscious people don't want tea trust me on this if someone said yes to tea around your house last saturday that doesn't mean they want you to make them tea all the time they don't want you to come around to their place unexpectedly and make them tea and force them to drink it going but you wanted tea last week or to wake up to find you pouring tea down their throat going but you wanted tea last night If you can understand how completely ludicrous it is to force people to have tea when they don't want tea, and you are able to understand when people don't want tea, then how hard is it to understand when it comes to sex? Whether it's tea or sex, consent is everything. And on that note, I'm going to make myself a cup of tea. (laughs) No means no in all settings and all
0: contexts. And I think it's really important to just re-emphasize that basic point. And Tamar says no, and Amnon, Amnon ignores it, and it ends up in a really bad violation. And I appreciate that the, the tea illustration is somewhat humorous, but it's a, it teaches a deep truth that actually many in our culture uh, and in society today would really benefit from taking heed of that, of, of that instruction. Respecting someone's no actually reveals a genuine awareness that their wholeness and their personhood really matters to you properly. And that's very important. Number three, uh, being shrewd must always be secondary to being godly. Can I say that I do not like the character Jonadab in this story one bit, not at all. Now, he's a mutual cousin of both Amnon and Tamar, And he suggests a meeting between uh, these two uh, people, knowing full well that one of them does not have pure motivation. Uh, He encourages a pretense, he encourages acting, uh, and and he encourages Amnon not to be genuine or real. Um, To be honest, Jonadab was offered an opportunity there for him to say to, to Amnon and sit him down and say, look, dude, you need to either marry this woman and declare your interests openly and upfront, or you need to move on. That's what a healthy man would do to a brother, he'd kind of say, well, what, what's going on here? Okay, that's not healthy, that needs to stop, or you need to take it in and kind of make an honest woman of her, really. Um, that's what Jonadab should have done, but he doesn't do that. He sets up a little tryst, or he sets up a, a means by which these two people are likely, more likely to collide rather than build. And that is, that's a real shame. That's a really disappointing thing that Jonadab does. Later on in verse 32, we also find out that Jonadab seems to have been in the know about Absalom's intentions all along. It says this, Jonadab, son of brothers, uh, David's brother Shimear, spoke up, My lord must not think they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, because only Amnon is dead in fact absalom has planned this ever since the day amnon disgraced his sister tamar now how does he know that how does jonadab get behind the skin of what's going on and know that i think he must have been sufficiently in the know with absalom to understand absalom's hatred of amnon for all that time and yet jonadab doesn't seem to have done anything about it yet again it would have been far better for jonadab to advise absalom openly and healthily and say dude you need to find a way to forgive your your half-brother and to move on with your life you need to find a way of overcoming this in a healthy way yes what has happened um, is wrong you shouldn't have done those things I'm very very disappointed with how you've treated my sister Um, but you need to you need to move on we need to find a way forward through this I would say Jonadab is actually a total troublemaker Uh, and he's someone who sets up situations in a way that's damaging to other people and he seems to have more knowledge than he should and he uses that knowledge to exploit people and my point about that today is it's all very well being shrewd and sharp but we've got to use that for god's glory rather than using it to cause damage does that make sense some of us have got insight about how people work And and actually we're called to ensure that that insight is used for godly ends. Jonadab does not do that. Jonadab could have steered Amnon and Absalom, actually both, out of those situations. He genuinely could have prevented the rape. He could genuinely have prevented a murder by applying the knowledge that he had. But he didn't do that. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We know that one, don't we? When you put God first, it then directs the way in which you use your mind for His glory. If you don't put God first, your mind then becomes something that's just a will unto itself, and suddenly we've got people going off and doing their own thing, not in line with what God would hope. Uh, I actually think Jonadab is someone whose shrewdness was ungodly, and his influence upon people was disastrous. And if if you've got a Jonadab in your life, they take a while to discern. Uh, They're they're tricky customers to have around you. Um, uh, All I can say is that you'd need to judge people by their fruit. If there's a trail of long-term wreckage behind a person, in terms of the interrelationships between others, chances are you might have a Jonadab who is kind of setting people against each other. But the difficulty is it's hard to see. That is hard to spot. Number four, hatred of others often has roots in disliking something in ourselves. Hatred of others often has roots in disliking something in ourselves. I don't know if you've ever watched football fans at a a football stadium, and uh, they're chanting away, aren't they, at the football fans at the other end of the stadium. And some of what comes out of their mouths is not very nice, is it? You know, uh, comments on their their mother or comments on how useless their team is or whatever it might be. And really for 90 minutes those two sets of opposing fans have got an opportunity to really shout out all the things that they really dislike about the opposing team. Now there's something uh, that goes on about football that, that is kind of set up in that way. Um, it's obviously about the game, of course, it's about the game, but it's also, it gives you 90 minutes of having a little holiday from focusing on your own bad stuff and projecting it all onto the other team and their fans. And that's why it's appealing, isn't it? Because you, you've got 90 minutes of going, hey, there's nothing wrong with me, it's all your fault down that end of the, down that end of the stadium. And that's why it's kind of appealing. Just to, it goes, you know, life goes into suspend mode for a bit, doesn't it? And you have some artificial criteria that allow you to feel a bit better for a while, and then you go back to the drudgery of life. That, that's some of the psychology going on here. But what's really going on there is actually there's just a pretense for a moment that there's not the same kinds of things in you, as there is down the other end of the ground in the other fans because actually, most people are kind of the same and the, you know, the things we decry in our opponents are often things that we have in ourselves. Uh, um, what I want to say is I think that there's a switch that goes on in Amnon which is a switch that comes from not wanting to confront the really grotty stuff that he's just done and he puts it all on her. And so he's kind of got these lustful intentions towards her, he's got these thoughts, these desires and then suddenly he's able to kind of see those, see those through. And then, because he's seen those through, and, and that evil that's kind of birthed in him then comes out, he then kind of puts it on her and tries to blame her. Because that's way, way easier than it is to confront it in yourself. Much easier to kind of go, well, this, this, is, all, this is all your fault. You caused me to do this. Uh, This is nothing, you know, and so we, we have a tendency in our humanity to take away the things that are not right on the inside of us, and we put them on other people. And yet again, one of the themes that we find going back to again and again is the Garden of Eden. And didn't kind of Eve do that to Adam, and then Adam did that to Eve, and to, you know, everybody blamed everybody else, rather than going, oh, okay, that's on the inside of me. There's a switch that goes on, really, and it's cold and it's fast. Uh, 2 Samuel 13 uh, says, uh, from uh, verse 15, I think. So Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than he, the love he had loved her with. Get out of here, he said. Um, and this is a, this is a horrendous switch, and actually. She's a lot kinder to him and wanting to build something with him maybe much more than he realizes, uh, but he, he kind of rejects her. Um, there's an awful, uh, uh, awful verse uh, where it says, um, verse 16 and 17, um, Amnon says, but he refused to listen to her. Instead, he called to the servant who waited on him, get this away from me. Get this away from me. That is a horrendous phrase to use about a person. I'm guessing he's saying it about the mess that he's made but it could also mean get this as in this lady that I've turned into an object of my own lust get get her away from me and he's gone into seeing her as less than human and I'm suggesting that that that's in there and that's a painful thing to to realize that he's done so he's doing a transference there's something that he has hated about how he has been and he's put it on her um, and I think that that's that's something we've all got to watch in ourselves. We've got to be very, very careful with her. Uh, sorry, with with our with ourselves that we don't hate somebody for something that we actually don't like in ourselves. Very often, the, the most powerful forms of us disliking somebody is because they do a little bit of mirror holding to the seed of that in us. That's a painful reality. Um, just need to say it. Number five, dialogue is nearly always better than silence to resolve conflict. Dialogue is nearly always better than silence to resolve conflict. Something happens early on in David's journey which is quite interesting. What he, um, uh, he, when he goes to the battlefront, uh, he, goes, he takes those cheeses, doesn't he, to the field commander. He takes some gifts for his brothers and he goes and asks about what's going on. This is when, he's, when the whole thing with Goliath is going down. Um, Uh, and he goes down to the uh, to the front and his brother rounds on him and says terrible things to him like really insults him badly Um, it, it says this when Eliab David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men this is about Goliath and the battle Eliab burned with anger at him and asked why have you come down here and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is you came down only to watch the battle And this is the key thing, this is the beginning of a thread that I think that David really struggles with. Now what have I done, said David, can't I even speak? Or in the CSB version it says, it was just a question. And so there's, what I'm seeing here is a little bit of a family system for David, where there's maybe a lot of powerful characters in his family. Uh, You know, he's one of a large number of brothers, and uh, certainly the eldest brother is not impressed with David and puts him right down, puts him totally in his place. And of course that's a dynamic that means you clam up. How many times have you been in an environment where there's a very strong character, and then you just kind of not really fully said the thing you were going to say because you know that <laughs> the rebuke is coming or the put down is coming, and so you tend to back off and you're quiet. And I think David struggles with that. It, just a, just a tiny little snippet. But I think it's a pattern in his family that maybe to retreat from saying what needs to be said. And he kind of pipes up and says, Well, can't I even say anything? And that tells me that perhaps that's a pattern from the from before that he would always be the last to get something said and so maybe healthy dialogue wasn't a standard in David's family just suggesting that you can make a case that it may be, I'm making taking it too far but listen to what then happens later on um, we, we see this happening again and again in 2 Samuel 13 not just with David but also with Amnon and with Absalom um, Absalom actually counsels Tamar to be quiet um, it says to samuel 13 20 her brother absalom said to her has your brother amnon been with you be quiet now my sister don't take this thing he is your brother don't take this thing to heart um, and tamar does take it to heart though and she lives as a desolate woman in the house of her brother absalom i want to question the wisdom of absalom saying to tamar be quiet you know all of our Um, ways to get healthy about a really difficult trauma in our life are going to involve some kind of dialogue they're going to involve some kind of talking with the right person with the right support and in the right setting and so for um, Absalom to counsel his sister to be quiet is not a healthy thing to do that's not healthy Uh, we also get um, further on uh, 2 Samuel 13 21 uh, when King David heard about all these things he was furious now, a healthy person would then, you'd then see another verse saying, and he summoned Amnon to the palace and had it out with him. What on earth were you doing? You know, would have, you know, would have been a healthy thing to do, actually. But you don't see that. It stops there. He's just angry. Doesn't go anywhere. And then it also, Absalom, ne- very next sentence, Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon but he doesn't talk, and so what we have is potentially a family system that doesn't talk very much or doesn't allow healthy dialogue, then we have a king who's furious but unable to say what he needs to say, and then Absalom counselling his sister to be quiet, and then Absalom not saying anything to Amnon. It's a pretty dysfunctional picture based on not talking properly or not talking in a healthy way. we have this thing in our team and uh, on staff and amongst the elders of something called a crucial conversation which is that we need to have a difficult conversation because there's something a little bit sensitive that we need to raise or we need to talk through Um, and we're recognizing that in a crucial conversation the opinions differ, the stakes are high and the feelings are strong. I bet every single person in this room has had a crucial conversation, yeah? where you've gone into a conversation and suddenly the adrenaline's flowing and you're like, why is this adrenaline flowing? Oh, okay. <laughs> We're into a crucial conversation. We have a big difference of opinion here. The stakes are high and, uh, and the feelings are strong. And that can sometimes lead to worse conversations rather than better ones because your better conversations are when you're more cool, more objective, more clinical and not in the heat of the moment. Did you know that in a crucial conversation, your adrenaline pumps to make you do fight or flight? And and your brain's ability to be cool and rational and objective is is reduced by quite a lot. Uh, And that's just about the most unhelpful thing, because you need to be cool and rational in a difficult conversation. But the difficult conversations must be had, even though they are not easy, because otherwise conflict doesn't get resolved. Dialogue is the way to try and resolve conflict, even though it feels pretty terrible. Because if we don't do that, things can get bottled up, and then we lead to much worse consequences. We get, In fact, in this story, we, we get into a murder. Somebody plots a murder because they can't have a proper conversation. You know, Tamar should have had strong support and help to talk through what had been done to her and to confront Amnon and with help to do that. David should have confronted Amnon as his son. What on earth are you doing? Uh, Absalom should have confronted uh, Amnon. You know, you have absolutely violated my sister. Um, Amnon should then have received some kind of judgment or punishment for his actions. That's what should have happened. But for some reason, in this very dysfunctional family, combing out the difficulties with some hard conversations seems to be beyond them. That's very difficult for them. But the price they pay is so much higher than if they'd attempted that. And so the lesson for ourselves is to build up to having that difficult conversation. You knew I was going to say that. (laughs) It's going to be, you're going to have to have some hard conversations sometimes. You're going to have to steal yourself and say, hey, I don't like it when you do that. I don't like it when you hurt me, or you hurt me when you do that. Sometimes those are the things you just have to come out and say and that's really hard but if you don't say it it bottles and bottles and bottles and then you could get into some very very difficult territory the way to tell whether you need to have a difficult conversation is that you're plotting vengeance and rehearsing what you'd say in private you ever done that (laughs) on the way to school or in the car or maybe in the workplace or just in a private moment you're just you know and you kind of you say it all don't you and you win the conversation. Yeah. Now that, you do, you win, you absolutely win. You, you, you come out with that absolute slam dunk put down and you've won it by yourself, <laughs> in your mind and you know, in your space. You've won it. But if, what I'm saying, that's natural, everybody does that, I think they do, maybe I'm on, maybe on the only one. Um, but every, everybody does that, but what's, what's, what's gotta be looked for is if that happens a lot. If that happens over and over again over a period of six months, let's say, and you've done that, Winning it in private conversation eight or ten times. Ah, okay. That's your sign that you might need some help to go and have a conversation for real because then it will sort it out. And what I see is that David and Amnon and Absalom don't do that. They really don't. They don't they're not equipped to do that in whatever way. Number six, sin in ourselves reduces our capacity to confront similar sins in others. It really does. Um, did you remember that last week Uh, When we looked at our part five message, I talked to you about the idea of the difference between forgiveness and consequences. Well, David's been forgiven, but some consequences now crop up in the message this week. Um, The plain fact is that David was not really able to confront the sexual sin in Amnon because he had sinned sexually himself. Amnon's able to say, well, hold on, Dad, what about you and Bathsheba? (laughs) And, uh, And David's got to go, oh, yeah. That wasn't right and so he's less able to tackle that in Amnon in addition he couldn't confront the sin of murder in Absalom because again he had murdered Uriah Absalom could say well dad you and Uriah what was that all about don't be lecturing me you can't talk to me about that because you don't have a clean record yourself and this is where this is hard so There's forgiveness, but sometimes a shadow of consequences falls across the generations or it falls into areas that we really wished it wouldn't because we're then hamstrung by our own inability to fix it because we don't feel able to fix it because we did it wrong ourselves. Public authority dwindles when private integrity has been eroded. Now, if we submit ourselves fully to Christ and confess our sins properly, then we then get blessed, potentially, with not having to watch the next generation repeat our sins. As in in the case with Rahab and Boaz. She came fully around, didn't she? One way or another, she managed to get to a place of making her family system healthy enough to turn Boaz into a total gent. Number seven, and there's only one more after this, work towards reconciliation, not vengeance. I find it very disappointing and disturbing that not only does Jonadab miss an opportunity to bring Absalom round and talk to him about that, but that actually Absalom sets up a revenge, uh, something for revenge or vengeance over a two-year period. And then he carries it out. That's pretty chilling, isn't it? Imagine if you'd done something really terrible to somebody and then they they spent two years working out how to kill you for that. I mean, that's just awful, isn't it? Nobody needs that. They, we really don't. I mean, that's, that's why the title of the sermon today is called Fixation and Fury. We've got Amnon's Fixation, and then we've got Absalom's Fury. And that's why we have that title. Um, Absalom devises a social setting in which he can get his own back and avenge his sister. Uh, I actually think David might have suspected a little bit of that. And David could have said a little bit more to protect that. And so when Absalom says, oh, yeah, can my brother Amnon go with us to this sheep shearing convention, whatever that was, which seemed to have been set up in order for this to happen, David really ought to have gone a little bit further uh, because he says, doesn't he, I think it's um, 2 Samuel 13 between 25 and 27 there, it says, the king asked him, why should he go with you? There's a little bit of a flicker of suspicion there, isn't it? And if you're a dad and you've got two sons that are totally kind of at each other's throats about an issue do you really want to send them off together hmm I don't think that was too wise but David doesn't feel able to speak into that properly um and so he lets Amnon go and then we suddenly find ourselves with a murder God needs to be the broker of your justice God needs to be the person that you take your wish for vengeance to you must not take vengeance into your own hands tempting though it is So, so tempting to be the the executor of the justice system of you, isn't, isn't it? And to come out with the stuff that sorts out everything, and puts everything right, and you be the person that does it. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very plainly, give your issues to God and let Him be the executor of justice on your behalf. Hard though that is, He will do it way, way better than you, not least because He can see everything. He sees all the chess pieces on the, on the board. You can just see your little bishop there, and you just want to move and take that queen down. Don't do it. Let God organize the game for you, because he's way more merciful, way more insightful, way more kind. And he will deal with it for you so much better than you will. Romans 12, uh, 17 to 21 says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honourable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And in that, you can trust that the Lord will do it really, really well, and really, really fairly, and really mercifully. I'm going to ask the worship team just to come up and join me. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, team. And the last point. This is quite a subtle point, and actually, um, you can interpret this a couple of ways. You might want to disagree with me on this. In fact, a lady in the first service wasn't sure, came and talked to me about it afterwards, and fair play, she had a good, good point of view. Number eight, resist the temptation to define your family by your interior drama. Resist the temptation to set things up in your family that are kind of like a memorial to your big struggle. Now, what what am I saying by that? We need to just jump forward into 2 Samuel 14, 27 to understand that where it says, three sons were born to Absalom and a daughter named Tamar. So Absalom has gone ahead and named one of his own children the same name as his violated sister. Now that is a really strange thing to do. Now, maybe he was wanting to say, okay, you're going to come back from this sister Tamar and a new start is possible, and then look, there's this little girl and she's going to represent your new start, which was, in essence, what the lady in the first service wanted to try and tell me, I think. I, have a, I still maintain that that's not a super healthy thing to do. Why are you defining your next generation by your struggle and by your thing that you had a real difficulty with? Oh, yeah, little Tamar. Yeah, we called you that because your auntie had a real difficult time and we just wanted her to feel better. <laughs> what? I don't think that's so healthy, can I just put it out there? Don't do that. Resist the temptation to typecast your next generation out of the fights that you've had. Give them freedom, just be, let them be independent. Call them something brand new that has no reference to anything else. Now, don't hear me wrong, I think it's fine to, to use family names and to have names that go back a long way is great. If that's innocent and has nothing connected with it, but I'd be really wary of picking a name that's loaded in that way and putting that on a new life. Is that kind, is that wise? Was that a good thing for for Absalom to do? I'm not sure, that's not so healthy.